You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. Last week's news that the Detroit incinerator would close was really cheered by environmental activists who have worked for years to see that happen. And no doubt the air we breathe around here in the city is going to get better when they shut that incinerator down. But just a few weeks before that news broke, an interesting study was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences about the inherent inequality of air quality here in the United States. According to the findings, white Americans contribute more to air pollution than minority Latino or black populations, but they're less likely to be breathing that air pollution. The researchers looked at what goods and services were actually creating air pollution, i.e. factories, who was actually consuming or benefiting from the things that create that air pollution, and then they looked at demographics for the areas with the most air pollution. Now, think about how that all plays out right here in Detroit. The incinerator took a lot of its garbage in from mostly white suburban communities. But those who live near the incinerator and are most affected by its pollution are people of color and the poor. What about southwest Detroit? Think of all the factories and industry in that area of town. They pollute the air and the water for people of color who live close by to those things. That does not have the same effect on white communities that are far away from it. This raises a lot of questions about how we think about air quality and air pollution, how we regulate the industries that create this kind of pollution, both in the air and the water. And it raises really big questions about what to do about this. It is not a problem with a lot of easy solutions. It's about where people live, which is connected to historic discrimination and racism. It's about environmental policy, which seems to move at a snail's pace often in terms of change in our society. That's where we want to pick up the conversation here on Detroit Today and talk about this kind of discrepancy that we're seeing in air quality. And here to help us unpack all of that is Nick Shrek. He is the Director of Clinical Programs and an Associate Professor of Law at the University of Detroit Mercy Law School. Nick Shrek, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me, Stephen. And also with us is Kimberly Hill Knott. She's an environmental policy activist and president and CEO of Future Insight Consulting. Kimberly Hill Knott, great to have you here on Detroit Today as well. Thank you so yeah. much for having me. So uh, let's start with this idea of the air quality in Detroit. This study was really interesting. Um, and let's talk about what the air quality is like in Detroit and in Metro Detroit, and whether there are big differences when we look at uh, neighborhoods in the city, for instance, and then look at the suburbs. Uh, Kimberly Hill Knott, are we a good example of the inequality that was pointed out in this study? I believe so. I mean, particularly when you look at the city of Detroit and much of the research that has been done about the levels of pollution, and this is not only a trend Uh, locally, but certainly nationally. And so Detroit, as you know, has two of the state's most polluted zip codes, 48217 and 48209. Now we need to also look at the demographic breakdown of those two zip codes, uh, primarily African-American and Latino, uh, as well as poor people. 
uh, including poor whites. And so um, when you look at the issue of cumulative impact, which we can talk a little bit more, uh, which lead to cumulative risk, uh, we will see that most of those problems are concentrated in low incomes and communities of color. So 482 uh, of course, is what we call the dog leg of Detroit, that little jutting uh, area that goes into Southwest, uh, where where uh, there are lots and lots of industries. 48209 is adjacent to 217. Is that is that right? And so I guess it's not a surprise, given what's in those zip codes, that those are the most polluted, is it? No, it is not. I mean, it's an area of heavy uh, industry. Um, and in fact, uh, 48209 is adjacent to the River Rouge community where the uh, DTE uh, power plant is, although it will be shutting down uh, within a few years. It's still there mm-hmm. and still emitting And so, so what does that mean? That these are two of the most polluted zip codes. Talk about the health characteristics that we would see or the health consequences that we would see for people who live in those areas. So, you know, the article was very interested, uh, interesting, and Nick, you can jump in too, um, because it really focused on fine particulate matter, uh, which is uh, PM 2.5. And so I want to just briefly read a definition that came from the community action to promote healthy environments, and that's the, uh, the uh, of the CAFE project. And it says airborne particulate matter, also known as PM or particulate pollution, is a mixture of extremely small particles and liquid droplets that can include acids, organic chemicals, metals, soil and dust particles and biological matter such as fungal spores. Small, smaller particles uh, pose a health concern because they can be inhaled into and accumulated in the lungs. Particles less than 2.5 micrometers in diameter are called uh, PM 2.5. And so when you look at the health risks, you look at um, cardiovascular uh, issues, you look at uh, lung irritation, coughing and difficulty breathing, you look at asthma uh, and other uh, decreased lung uses uh, as a result of being exposed to this very dangerous uh, matter over a long period of time. Mm. Uh, Nick Schreck, this is something that you also pay pretty close attention to, this idea of what the air quality is like in Metro Detroit. Um, what was your reaction to this study? Well, I mean, you know, Kimberly's right that that focus on small particulate matter is really important because we know that it has significant negative health outcomes today. Um, There's also some really interesting research looking into things like early onset dementia from from fine particulate matter. So in addition to all of those health risks that Kimberly mentioned, dealing with asthma in our lungs and, and cardiovascular, I mean, we're also concerned about impacts on our brains, and particularly young brains. And so, um, you know, Paul Mohai at the University of Michigan several years ago um, did a study looking at where elementary schools are located in the city of Detroit. And many of those schools are adjacent to major industrial facilities that emit a lot of this fine particulate matter as well as other pollutants. I mean, so that's one thing that we continue to see an inequity of, you know, where kids go to school, where they're educated, where they're able to to recreate and to play and and have, um, you know, time outside. I mean, a lot of those impacts are felt um, from, from negative air pollution here in the city of Detroit as well. And just one other thing to point out, 
the study looked a lot at, at highways, where highways are um, present and where people live next to highways and freeways. And, you know, you look at Detroit as sort of a case study here. Um, we literally put highways in the middle of African-American communities in the city of Detroit. And so it, it, it shouldn't be surprising that then, you know, years later you have people that are suffering negative um, health outcomes from these policy decisions, which were literally to bulldoze neighborhoods of people of color and put roads through them. Um, so, you know, I think that's a great example. And then, of course, when we look at the historic racism in our region here, um, with redlining, and there were, there were certain areas where people were only allowed to live. You know, in, in other words, they had to stay in certain areas that were oftentimes near these sources of major air pollution. And so you go back and you look at that history, and then you, you get up to today, and, it, and it's you know not surprising that we have these inequities and inequalities um, with where people live and what their, their health outcomes are based on where they live. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, and, and what's so also interesting about that, um, as Nick uh, pointed out, is that we've not really done anything to address the issue. So after all of these years of ill-advised land use planning, there have not been laws to really correct um, many of the environmental exposures that these uh, people have uh, been, you know, experiencing for far too many years. Um, What was also interesting about the article and actually looked at the journal article, is where it said that uh, there were three areas where whites had the highest level of consumption, and that was food, transportation, and services. And I thought that was interesting, particularly when you look at the city of Detroit and many urban centers that are food deserts. And so we do not have access to uh, grocery stores, and particularly full-scale grocery stores like a Myers or a Kroger. Um, and also transportation, access to transportation. So poor communities may be more uh, less likely to have uh, multiple uh, forms of transportation, uh, motorized transportation. So wealthier communities may have two or three cars, where poor communities may only have one car, if that. And then services, um, not really defined, but could include home repair uh, and other um, services that may lead to these type of emissions. Mm. And my guests are Kimberly Hill Knott, an environmental policy activist and president and CEO of Future Insight Consulting. Also with us is Nick Schreck. He's the director of clinical programs and associate professor of law at the University of Detroit Mercy Law School. We're talking about a new study that says that even though white people uh, consume and buy and sort of own the mechanisms of lots of the industries that create air pollution, not just here in Detroit, but around the country, uh, they are not the people who are affected primarily by those things, that the pollution generated by the factories and other industries uh, are in neighborhoods that are mostly for people of uh, communities of color. They're they're where people of color are living. We're talking about the racial disparities that that points out and talking about what might we do to change that. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. What have you noticed about air pollution in your community? If you live here in southeast Michigan, tell us what you think the air quality is like where you live. And if you think, if you think it's not great, uh, tell us why. Tell us what around you you feel like is contributing to pollution. Do you live by a highway or a factory? There's no one in Detroit, in, in any part of Detroit, I think, that can't say they live near a, a highway. Uh, how has that affected your family's health? Do you feel like uh, elected officials are doing what they should be doing about this problem? And are things getting better 
or are they getting worse? As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will try to work you back into the conversation. Uh, Before we get to the phones, uh, Kimberly and Nick, uh, I want to talk about the kinds of actions we could take to change this dynamic. Uh, Nick, as you point out, uh, a lot of this is driven by by historic distri- discrimination in terms of where people live, right? People, right. Not, not everybody has had the same uh, value of choice in terms of where they might make their home. Uh, so that makes this kind of a, 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 a thorny issue to try to get to, right? Uh, the, it does. Yeah, it does, ahead. but there's, there's some things we can do. Um, and, and Kimberly hinted at this as well. Um, based on our permitting um, program, the way that we actually permit industrial facilities to you know, give them a license effectively to pollute, we look at every one of these facilities in isolation under our current laws and regulations. We don't look at what are called cumulative impacts or the mixture of different types of pollution and different amounts of pollution from several facilities. And so one of the problems we continue to have in Detroit is we have a a high concentration of industrial facilities in in certain areas like southwest Detroit, and that concentration means that there's more of a soup of pollution that's emitted, and we're not looking at this holistically from, let's say, a regional view of our air pollution. We're looking at each one of these facilities in isolation to look at whether or not they're staying within their, their permit requirements. And that can lead to a problem. You know, we talk in environmental law about the tragedy of the commons. You know, if we allow um, all of these different types of pollution, it's sort of like a death by a thousand cuts that can happen. And so one way to look at this is how can we assess cumulative impacts as a region and see it, you know, better permitting, adjusting our permitted levels of pollution so that we're effectively protecting public health. One other thing I'll throw out there, which we also hinted at, is this question of zoning. And Detroit is really fascinating in that we have industrial areas that have creeped into residential areas over the years. Um, you know, Marathon Oil Refinery would be a good example of that, where you have industrial, major industrial facility immediately adjacent to residential zoning. And that's that's a problem, right? We would prefer to have a buffer. Maybe you have some light industrial use or some, some businesses, some commercial activity, and then residential. So you don't have people that are literally on the fence line of these major sources of pollution. And then, oh, by the way, you know, maybe having in that buffer some green space, um, some, some trees and some parkland that can actually help um, alleviate some of that pollution. I mean, those are things that we can do to try and, you know, moving forward, address some of these concerns. Mm. And some of the things that I would also offer as solutions uh, is to really develop more stringent standards to reduce particulate matter, fine particulate matter 2.5, um, uh, reduce reliance on motorized vehicles, uh, really develop legislation that specifically addresses cumulative impact, focusing on socioeconomic indicators as well as environmental stressors and strengthen the Clean Air Act. What was interesting is that you know, although uh, it has been reported that white people um, are, are, you know, larger consumption, uh, larger consumers, um, that many of the communities that they live in actually capture pollution. So they have systems in place that actually capture the pollution, whereas poor people do not. And mm-hmm. so it really comes down to economics. Yeah. 
Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to get to comments and the phones to talk about uh, air pollution and the discrepancies with air air pollution in different communities here in southeast Michigan. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones, 313-577-1019. If you want to join the other callers to talk about this subject, we'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guests are Kimberly Hill Knott. She's an environmental policy activist and president and CEO of Future Insight Consulting. Also with us is Nick Schreck, director of clinical programs and an associate professor of law at the University of Detroit Mercy Law School. We're talking about a new study that suggests that uh, while uh, on average uh, non-Hispanic whites experience a pollution pollution advantage, they're calling it. They experience 17% less air pollution exposure than is caused by their consumption. Blacks and Latinos, on average, bear a pollution burden of 56% and 63% excess exposure, respectively, relative to the exposure caused by their consumption. Uh, This is a form of inequality that uh, it's hard to come up with ideas sometimes to figure out how we fix, given our very large consumer appetites in this country, and also given the history of discrimination when it comes to housing. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Paul in Dearborn asks... Why is this study so focused on race? We're talking about industrial areas that have been polluted for over 100 years, and these areas used to be predominantly white. Talk about why race is the, is the important factor here. Kimberly or well, Nick, either one. It doesn't <laughs> matter. <laughs> I can. I know Nick, you can you both take answer it? that. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I, I think you you can look at this in in any number of ways. But I mean, there are very clear distinctions here based on race. You know, one of the things, and I've often heard this in, in talking to different groups, people will say, well, gosh, you know, it used to be that I wanted to live next to the refinery because I could I could walk to work or maybe come home on my lunch break and say hi to the kids, you know, <laughs> that type of thing, that it was an advantage to live close to, to major industrial sources. Well, the thing is, is that now we know a heck of a lot more about what that pollution does to our bodies and impacts that it can have on our health. And we also know that there were people, you know, maybe back in the 1960s and 70s that could sell their house in industrial areas and move to a place perhaps further out into the suburbs. And they were completely free to do that when their homes had a good value. Um, Unfortunately for a lot of people, because of redlining and other racist policies, they were not able to sell their homes and move into an area in the suburbs. And so, you know, race is something that I think we have to consider because when you look at the historical reasons of why people live where they live, it isn't always just based on a free choice and, and um, you know, a free economy of scale that they're operating in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Nick, I, huh. I really appreciate your, your putting that in context. And, and it is important to remember that even though um, there have been times when people who are white have been um, put in positions where they didn't have much choice, the reason we see things 
play out the way they they have now is that people of color have never been in, in a position where they can exercise the same kinds of choices. And so right. uh, while a hundred years ago, it's true, uh, white people lived around the refineries and those and those kind of things. They had more agency even then than African Americans and Latinos do now. But certainly at some point they were they attained the agency to be able to say, we're not going to live here anymore. And you cannot ascribe that same kind of choice to uh, to other groups. And just, just one more thing quickly, Stephen. I mean, and this gets to what Kimberly was talking about. You know, you look at, at purchasing power. You know, who in this country has the ability to buy that second or third car or to, mm-hmm. you know, fly on the plane across the country for vacations and all these things that, you know, in- increase our, our pollution footprint? Um, and you look at the wealth disparity in this country, and you look at it on racial lines, and there's no question that you know um, white Americans in this country have a lot more disposable income to spend on things and a lot more interge- intergenerational wealth. And so, if we don't look at race when we're when we're thinking about these um, connections between money and resources and pollution, then we're doing ourselves a real disservice at trying to get at the root of these problems. And I think it was a brilliantly done uh, study because I think believe that this is the first of its kind to really look at consumption on the basis of race. And yeah. you cannot look at consumption uh, without, uh, in, on the basis of race without looking at economics, uh, which has everything to do with race. And so I think that the two uh, areas that they focused on was really brilliantly done. And I look forward to further research that can really scale down even at the city uh, level, as far down as the city, but county and state levels. Again, Paul, I really appreciate the ca- the, the question. Paul called in and could not stay on the line. Uh, let's go to Brett in Ypsilanti. Brett, welcome to Detroit today. Hi, thank you for taking my call sure. and covering environmental justice. Um, I'm at University of Michigan, and I'm actually on a team of graduate students. We're studying how other states address cumulative impacts through screening tools and programs that allocate funding equitably Hmm. um, to those who are most impacted by environmental burdens. And so we've been mapping out these cumulative burdens across Michigan, and hopefully we'll be sharing that soon. Um, But I guess I just wanted to highlight there's been recent developments within this space Stephanie Chang introduced the bill in the state legislature that would hopefully create a program where those most impacted by air quality violations get the money from those violations. But I guess I'm just concerned with our state, the history um, under Governor Snyder, the fact that our legislature is GOP controlled. Um, It seems like there's not really a way to meaningfully get this done. And the industry has such a strong grip on our state's government. Um, that I'm just I'm concerned how we would address this at the state level, and I, I'm hopeful maybe that the governor can look into executive directives. Um, I guess I, I would want to know if the callers, if, um, who I who I recognize their names, I know they're involved in EJ in the state. Mm-hmm. Um, how can we get the governor to really move forward um, on things without the state legislature um, to define environmental justice? at the DEQ and create programs like this, um, because I don't think we can rely on the GOP in Michigan to, hmm. to help us with this. Yeah, Brett, I appreciate the call and the questions, uh, Kimberly. I think that uh, the best route may be the regulatory route, and so um, and also working through the Attorney General's office. So how can she uh, really put pressure on uh, these industries to comply? And if they don't, uh, fines are assessed. 
uh, I don't know if they would actually have to go through uh, the legislation or the legislative route to actually increase the amount of funds and then determine how those funds are distributed. But that may be uh, be able they may be able to be uh, do that through the regulatory route instead of going through legislation. So I would uh, suggest that maybe there's a roundtable or something that really further explores um, the authority that the governor can use to achieve that goal. Uh, thanks very much again, Brett, for the call and the questions. Uh, let's go to Marianne and McCall. Marianne, I've got uh, about a minute and a half left, but I wanted to get you in here. Good morning. Hey. Um, I've lived in five different states, and actually the area that I've lived in that was the most polluted was the UP. Hmm. Um, we lived in Sault Ste. Marie. And uh, we were right across from the paper mills and the steel mill in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, which is actually, um, from what I've read, uh, the Ontario's most polluted city. And in Sioux, Michigan, there's a very large Native American population. Mm. And I think that it was allowed to go on for so long because it was a Native American population. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And it, and it, I think had the population been white for a long time, that there would have been more backlash yeah. and it wouldn't have been allowed to go on for as long as it did. Sure. Marianne, I, I really appreciate that example. I mean, we're, we're, we live here in southeast Michigan. I think that's our first frame of reference. But Marianne reminds us that these are issues across the state and that this issue of race and inequality mm-hmm. also spreads across all of Michigan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, Native Americans are people of color. Sure. And so it really feeds back into what we have been saying about the racial inequality uh, that exists with uh, this whole issue of where the facilities are placed, um, the exposure to uh, environmental stressors and other issues that further exacerbate uh, the challenges that uh, poor people and communities of color have. Yeah, and it's it's the same challenge with you know who's getting the benefits of that pollution. You know, mm-hmm. if, if out there if we're talking about paper mills or we're talking about mm-hmm. you know or refining that type of thing, I mean, who who then is buying those products? Who's getting the benefit but isn't actually suffering from the pollution? So it's the same question whether you're in a rural area or an urban area. It's that question of equity and you know who gets access to those benefits um, that, that the pollution actually provides. Right. Okay, Kimberly Hill Knott, environmental policy activist and president and CEO of Future Insight Consulting. Thank you for being here on Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. Also, Nick Schreck, director of clinical programs and associate professor of law at U of D Mercy Law School. Always great to catch up with you as well. Thanks, Stephen and Kim. All right, that's going to do it for us today. We're going to continue our week of shows about health and health policy tomorrow, talking about measles, which is making a real comeback because of arguments over vaccinations. You're not going to want to miss that discussion. I'll be back then. Uh, I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, the community service of Wayne State University. I'll talk with you again tomorrow.